Hello and welcome. This is the Female Athlete Podcast, Hear Her Sports, a podcast for everyone who loves stories by and about women striving to improve and make a difference in their lives. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in the business of sport through a thoughtful conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. My guests and I explore the glorious and frustrating issues in sports, history, equity, training, nutrition, and so much more. I am so glad you are here listening. This episode is special. I'm going to admit I have wanted to have cross-country ski racer Jessie Diggins on the show for years, and here we are. It's happened, and she couldn't have been nicer, kinder, or more generous, so now I'm an even bigger fan than I was before. If you, too, are already a Jessie fan, hearing her today will be a real treat. If you don't know Jessie, I'm so excited that you're here. Jessie is deservedly a star in the ski racing world. In 2018, she and Keegan Randall won gold at the Pyeongchang Olympics, making them the first Americans to win a Nordic Ski Olympic gold medal. And they did it in totally spectacular, sparkly, chaotic Jesse style. If you haven't seen the coverage of that finish, oh my goodness, do watch it. Just thinking about it can bring tears to my eyes. There's a link to that coverage in the show notes. Jesse also won two medals at the most recent Olympics in Beijing, and an individual gold medal at the 2023 World Championships. Another first. With that gold, she became the first American to win an individual gold medal at Worlds. The list of Jessie's wins and podiums is way too long to go through now, but a particularly memorable one for me was her overall win at the 2021 Tour de Ski. Tour de Ski is a multi-day race, much like a cycling stage race, that in 2021 finished on the super steep ski slope in Val de Fiemme, Italy. Watching her and all of the other athletes go up that mountain was epic, and Jessie fought, as she does, extremely hard that day to maintain her lead in the overall. Winning was another first. She is the first American woman to take the overall at Tour de Ski. But forget about all those firsts and incredible results. Jessie was a delight to talk to and is much more than her racing. In her book, Brave Enough, she shared her full story of being an elite athlete and her struggles with an eating disorder starting when she was a teen. In the episode, we talk about the Emily Program Treatment Center that, using her words, saved her life. As a winter snow athlete, Jessie is intimately aware of the impact climate change has on the places she returns to year on year to ski and race. So she gives her time and energy as an ambassador for Protect Our Winters. Also in this episode, Jessie and I talk about digging deep, training in Vermont, the World Cup coming to the United States this winter for the first time ever, being a good human, real gratitude, what is supportive team culture and how to get there, not being perfect, and how to say no, plus more. I'm so pleased to be able to share with you this fantastic Jesse Diggins conversation. So sit down, prepare to be surprised and have some fun. Enjoy. Here's Jesse. Well, hello and welcome to Hear Her Sports. You know, Jesse, I have to say thank you like a thousand times. I so appreciate you taking the time to be here. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. You know, I want to start just, could you orient us in time and place? I know, you know, like with athletes, they have a sort of a cyclical year. So like, where are you physically and where are you in terms of your training? And let's yeah, start there. Yeah, Absolutely. So physically, right now, um, I'm in Stratton, Vermont. This is where I train with my club team. And I've been out here, gosh, this might be my 11th year 
that I've been out here, which has been really, really crazy um, because I'm originally from Minnesota um, and I've just loved the training out here. And then in terms of like the training cycle, it's it's pretty cool. Like we we race from November through March on the World Cup, April's off, and then starting in May, we start building up with our training. And so the summer is a lot of volume. It's a lot of building this really strong base. And then uh, this is kind of the part of the year where we start sharpening things up. And so intervals are a little more intense. They're shorter. They're harder. And you, you start really seeing people hone in that focus. Not that we're not focused all year long, but it's pretty cool seeing everything kind of come to a sharper point. And that's been really, really fun to, yeah, we're, we're basically starting the preparation for the actual racing part of the season now that we have this big base to go off of. Right. Do you like that cyclical year? I do. I think it's really important for me, not just physically, but mentally. I notice that, you know, when I give myself a real break in April, both physically and mentally, away from racing, away from the sport. Um, I love snow, but when I get away from it, it makes me appreciate what I get to do the rest of the year so much more. And that's really important for me. And I find that when I have this cycle, you just enjoy all the different seasons of the year and your life. And I think that has been really great. Are you good at taking rest? I mean, like really at the end of your season, just like almost doing nothing? Okay. This is kind of funny because (laughs) in my everyday life, I am terrible at it. However, I've identified it as one of the absolute keys for me not burning out, not getting injured and staying in the sport. So I actually am so good at it in April. I think this last year I gave myself a week and a half or two weeks of literally nothing. And a lot of times when skiers are like, oh, I take April off, I go backcountry ski for eight hours a day. And I'm like, that's not off (laughs) for me. And that's totally fine. Different things work for different people. And I think that's important to recognize. But for me, when I say off, I mean like maybe I will walk to the grocery store back when we were living in South Boston and that's it. I And I'm not doing anything that makes me sweat because I know my body needs such a hard reset because I can push it so hard in the winter. So without that hard reset, I'm I'm worried that I will break or burn out or just not have a long, healthy career. And that's something that I really am aware of. Do you have trouble starting up again after that week or week and a half off or whatever you've taken? Well, that's the part that's really cool is that I find that I'm itching to get back into stuff. And not necessarily like roller skiing or cross-country skiing. I find that I'm I'm like uh, my husband, Wade, I'll be like, let's go to the tennis courts and you can like – watch me run after all the balls that I miss. And it's going to be really fun. And I find myself wanting to do all these other activities and just itching to move again, but in different ways. I find that I want to go hiking, not running. Um, And that's really cool. You mentioned that you have been living in Vermont for 11 years and it had never struck me that, yeah, you're in Vermont. You didn't stay in Minnesota to, to train. What do you like so much about Vermont? You know, in in many ways, it does feel like Minnesota in terms of the climate. Um, We're in the woods with a lot of trees and it's green mountains. So even though you do have a lot uh, 
more terrain to work with in terms of climbing when you're training, which is great. It still looks and feels very similar. So that was nice. But really, it was the club team atmosphere here. Like I'm, I'm part of SMST too. This has been my home for so long. I feel so supported here and really embedded within the community here. They really took me in and it's such an incredible environment for training, but also just living. Like it's very wholesome and I just love being part of this team. So I came out here having never been to Stratton, Vermont. I just kind of jumped in with the team because I knew there were going to be certain people on the team the year that it formed such as Sophie Caldwell, who I was like, oh, I roomed with her at World Juniors. I think she's awesome. She's super nice. She was super kind to me. I would love to be on a team with her. But I had no idea like where I was going to live. I didn't have a car. I didn't really have a plan. I came out here and was like, this is perfect. I'm not leaving. So you just arrived in Vermont and like let it all happen? That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty scary. And now when I think back on it, I'm like, wow. I'm normally not that, um, like I'm normally a little more calculated, but right. <laughs> I, I just, I needed a change and I figured it was, it was time to try a different state, try a different part of the country, try a different team. And it ended up being the exact right move. Sure. Okay. So here's a question and I hope it's not a hard one, but is it possible to describe what it's like to race a world cup? You know, like maybe pick a race and give us a little rundown, you know, I don't know how you would describe it to somebody who hasn't gone through that. Oh, you mean like the whole day or just the race? Just the race. Like, I mean, especially since you are so known for going deep into the pain cave, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how do like, what is it like to, to do that? Yeah. Okay. So I'll pick, let's say a 10 K skate not just because it's one of my favorite races, but it's one that we do often. We do a lot of sprints and a lot of 10-kilometer races. And let's say it's an individual start, simply because that's my favorite. It's you against the clock in the course. So you are out there alone. And you might get splits from your coaches, but they may or may not be helpful based on where you start. You might be getting back splits. So the way I think about it is I've come up the night before with three goals for this race. One is around pacing because you obviously can't just blast out of the gates. You'll you'll fall apart. So how am I going to meter out my energy so that when I cross the finish line, there is nothing left and not a second too late or too soon, you know? And then one is uh, around technique. So I visualized like, how do I want to ski? How am I going to be most efficient? And then the other one is the mental goal. So when this gets hard, when my lungs are on fire and I cannot feel my legs, they're numb from the waist down, what am I going to tell myself to keep going? And so I should explain that last one there. Um, so when I'm racing really, really hard, maybe it's six kilometers, maybe it's seven, maybe it's eight kilometers into that 10-kilometer race, things will start happening to my body because I'm pushing the absolute limits of what I am capable of because I actually am not like a standout athlete. If you looked at just my VO2 max, my strength, my technique, my power, my speed, all of those things, I'm fairly average, but what I can do is suffer. And 
maybe that's not the skill set I would have picked for myself, but it's what I've got. So that's what I have to work with. So I'm pushing the limits of pacing and slowly my legs will start to go numb and it'll start with my feet, but then it'll travel sometimes all the way up to my waist where I actually just can't feel what's going on down there and I can still move them. I'm not cramping up or anything, but I can't feel my legs. And usually you'll get that feeling of tasting blood at the back of your throat when you're going really hard. And then sometimes my vision will tint. So everything will look slightly pink or slightly yellow. I don't know why, and I don't I can't predict which color it's gonna be, but if I'm really pushing my limits, things look a little funky. And um and then if I'm really, really, really going for it, sometimes the volume turns down as well. So I don't hear things the same way. Oh, wow. So people be like, oh, I gave you the split. And I'm like, yeah, I, I got none of that. I heard <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for your cheering. Yeah. Um, but it went right through my head. I didn't hear it. Um, and so for me in those moments, I have to have a really strong why to carry me through that kind of physical pain because it hurts. And I know that we all feel pain differently. Like if you and I both pushed our limits, we might have different physical tells and sensations going on. We're both working equally hard, but it feels different to different people. And to me, it is just so much pain. And when I cross the finish line, I feel like I'm going to pass out. I'm usually down on the ground and I'm gasping for air. <laughs> and um, it takes me a while. Like I will feel queasy and nauseous for the next hour, maybe hour and a half. When I'm walking out of the finish pen, usually my legs feel like jello. And that's when I can start feeling them again. But that's not necessarily a blessing. It's like <laughs> kind of annoying because it's actually pretty hard to walk straight. So I I wreck myself. And that's part of why I have to take those weeks in April off. Because when I go hard, it is pretty close to 100% effort. And there's only a couple races in my life where I've truly been able to give 100%. And it has cost me. So most of the time, if I'm being honest, I'm probably giving somewhere between 96 and 99%. And it depends on what's at stake. Is it a relay? Are my teammates' career goals on the line as well? Is it world championships? Is it a stage race where I have to race again tomorrow? There's a lot of calculations that go into exactly what percentage of my soul is going into a race. But ultimately what it comes down to is if I've decided I'm going to give as close to 100 as I possibly can, then I have to have a very strong why behind it. So for example, it might be a relay. It might be like, hey, I know if I win world championships, I'll have all the interviews. I get to say whatever I want. I get to control what message I talk about. So maybe I want to talk about climate change. Maybe I want to inspire girls in sport. Maybe I want to highlight mental health. Whatever it is, I will have the platform. And to me, that becomes worth that kind of pain uh, because I can do something with it. It might not be worth it just for the sake of winning. It usually isn't. There's usually something behind the scenes. Or maybe it's just the fact that I want to look our team of wax techs and coaches in the eyes and say, like, that was it. That was 100% win, lose, or draw because they've been out there for hours doing 
everything they possibly can to give me the best skis for that day. And I feel like the basic principles of integrity means that I owe it to them and to myself to make sure I lay it all out there. And so around 8K into that 10K race, when everything is going haywire and I can barely breathe or think, I come back to that why. And that's how I keep pushing through that pain cave. Man, I have a ton of questions about that. <laughs> uh, so what's happening in that 8K? And, you know, you said you're not thinking that well. Like, how are you able to focus on that why and actually act on it rather than just say, eh, forget about it? <laughs> like, I know we talked about the why, but I'm, I'm going to give up. No, I think that's a great point because no one is ever going to know but me, right? It's, I mean, I'm going to look like I'm in pain no matter what because <laughs> that's how I race. Like I'm not someone who makes it look easy. I make it look very hard. And so I'm the only person who's ever going to know it would be very easy to back off. And that going back to those goals I set the night before, that's where I try to anticipate that moment. And so when I visualize the night before, I'll visualize myself skiing with the best pacing plan, the best technique I can. I'll visualize all those things. And I will also visualize being in that state of pain and deciding to keep going forward. And I will visualize that decision point and try to get as accurate as I can. Like, this is what it's going to feel like. It's going to suck. And that's okay. And I think that's where like, I'm a very optimistic and very positive person, but I also want to be real about it. And so at the start of the race, if I turn to my coach and I'm like, yep, time to be in a lot of pain. This is going to suck. Like, that's a good thing because that is me embracing. It's not a negative. It's not like, oh, I'm scared. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm running into that pain cave because I've decided that I'm going in there and I'm in control of how far I go. And that puts power back into my hands. It's not just what is happening to my body. I have no control over my legs. It's no, I'm choosing to be here. And I could back out, but I'm not going to. I'll also boil it down with that mental goal of maybe a keyword or something very um, short that I can say to myself, maybe on a downhill before the next uphill to reset because I'm I don't have 20 seconds to be like, here's why this is important. Let's refocus. Like I need something now. Right. <laughs> and so oftentimes it'll be, how do you want to feel at the finish? And I'll ask myself that and then be like, oh, yeah, the only way I can really sleep with this tonight is if I keep going, you know, and, and, it, or it might be like your teammates waiting at the finish. Like I say that to myself or like, remember who you're doing this for. And it's like, oh, it's game on. I'm back in it. And so I will often use different points in the race. Maybe it's a transition segment. Maybe it's a quick downhill where you catch your breath to just exhale and refocus and bring it back in. Um, there's other things I do too. Like I'm a, I'm a counter. And so I will often count to 10 when it gets really painful. One of my tricks to refocus myself is I'll count just 10 V1 strokes to the left, then I'll do 10 to the right or 10 strides, 10 whatever, because you can do pretty much anything for 10 seconds. And then I reset and I refocused on the next 10 seconds. 
I am living only in those 10 seconds. That's the only thing in the world that matters in that moment. And it's actually funny because sometimes I do it out loud under my breath as I exhale. And I've had people who know this about me text me like, yeah, so I was watching the race live and I heard you counting <laughs> when you speed by the camera. <laughs> and so this, this, I really do do this in the race. And it's it's a pretty funny tell, but it's one of my tools to just refocus and be in the moment. I love that. I'm a counter too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it works. Um, I think it's super helpful to actually know that that pain point is coming, you know, like sort of the preparation that it's coming rather than it being a surprise, like, oh, geez, here we are again. I thought I was going to avoid it. No, there's no avoiding. Oh, absolutely. And that's why we are so intentional in our training. Like I was saying this time of year, the intervals like this morning, um, I was with one of my teammates, Elena, and we did five by four minutes really hard uphill. And it was the kind of thing where, for those of you data geeks, the lactate was, um, or the lactic acid test was showing like 10.4. Like it was hard. You're hanging on your poles at the end, and then you have to turn around and do it again and keep deciding to give everything you have. And this is all practice so that the the moment when it matters in a race isn't the first time you've ever been in that kind of pain. You're like, oh, instead of being surprised, it's like, oh, hello, old friend. I knew you were coming. I'm ready for you. And I know how to deal with you. So that's really helpful to have practiced that. Yeah. How do you maintain the technique in that eight to 10 kilometer? I mean, you said you couldn't even feel your legs. Well, so that's the thing I'm always trying to work on because <laughs> I get a lot of criticism for my technique. And trust me, I'm the first person to say I am working so hard on it. But the thing is, I could keep my technique together more if I gave less effort and less of myself. And I'm just not willing to do that. And so what's interesting is the tech, the wheels do start coming off. Like my technique does start to deteriorate. But I think over the course of my career, I've started to be able to hold on to it just a little bit longer into the race every time. And so that's something that I'm focusing on really, really hard and trying to balance and figure out. And a lot of that, I think, will come just through practice and time on snow. Yeah. Why do you race? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, that's it. I mean, that is a good question because I could just ski. Totally. And I plan to, like when I retire from competitive racing, I plan to have skiing in my life um, in some capacity, maybe coaching, maybe doing citizens races, maybe never racing ever again and just going out into the woods with my husband and just enjoying it. I, I don't know, but I think I'm very curious about what's down at the bottom of the well. And I think this all ties into why and how I'm able to push myself so hard because what you learn about yourself when you are so vulnerable, like you are in so much pain, the world is seeing you in this kind of pain. So there's no hiding it. And you decided to put yourself there just to see what happens in my brain when I do this and what am I really made of? And the rush that you get, that feeling of, 
I just did something so hard that most people in this world cannot or will not go there. And I chose to on purpose. And it makes you feel so strong and empowered and also totally broken and vulnerable at the same time. And it's such an interesting feeling. And I crave that. I really enjoy challenging myself that way. And I'm sure there will be other ways to challenge myself when I'm done skiing. I'm sure there's going to be other ways and other things. But right now, this is such an interesting, unique feeling. And the thing to me is it's not it's not just about winning. Of course, you want to win or you wouldn't be on the World Cup. But it's really about can I beat myself from yesterday? Can I beat this course? Can I beat the clock? It's not I want to beat you or I want to beat her. Like I'm genuinely friends with so many athletes from so many different teams and I'm so happy for them when they do well because I know what it took. You know, I've seen how hard they work and it's so cool to see them succeed. And they're also genuinely happy for me. And it's a very cool thing where it's just such a hard sport that when you see someone succeed, it's impossible to not be happy and respect that effort, you know? And I think that's one of the things that keeps drawing me in besides chasing that feeling of what's inside of my brain the people in this sport are incredible. And that's really what drew me to it. It's just, it's impossible to think you're too cool when you're covered in your own snot laying in the snow. And so it it attracts a certain kind of person. And I, turns out I love those people. Hi, just a short break. I'd love to encourage you to order all of your books via our bookshop page at hearhersports.com books. Soon we will be in that holiday shopping season, so take advantage of Bookshop, a great organization that supports local bookshops and this very podcast. On our main bookshop page, find recommendations from guests and even books they've written, like The Keeper by Kelsey Irvick, which would be a great gift for all of your soccer-loving friends and family. Or get your copy of Brave Enough by today's guest, Jessie Diggins. In her book, she tells inside details of becoming and being an elite athlete. It wasn't all glitter, so find out how Jessie made it work and achieved success. Check out all our book lists and make your order today at hearhersports.com books. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Jesse Diggins, Olympic medalist, world champion, and author of Brave Enough. You brought up, sort of, you led me into a question that I, I really, and I'm going to probably mess up how this is phrased, so you can help me out maybe too, is that 
sort of this love of competing, wanting to beat others, but being happy for the others. You know, like, how do you, again, because you said you were such an optimistic person, like an happy person, like, how do you manage the stress of competing and sort of how we, I think, visualize what competition is in terms of aggression and being angry and, you know, it's stressful, but then you're such a happy person. It just, there's a lot of stuff in there that for me gets, it gets a little confusing. So I would love to hear what what you have to say about that. I love that question because I think when I showed up on the World Cup for the first time with glitter on my cheeks and a huge smile on my face, I think I was very confusing to a lot of people. (laughs) And, um, It's funny. I think I tell people, like, don't let the glitter and the smile fool you because (laughs) I'm still going to go out there and try to crush myself on this course. I'm not going to try to crush you. I'm going to try to crush my own limits. And that's what I'm here to do. And to me, like the smile and the glitter on the cheeks, it's a reminder that I'm choosing to be here. I get to do this. I don't have to do this. I get to though. And it's it's an honor and a privilege to represent my country at the highest level. And it's an honor to be a role model for people and be the best mentor to my teammates that I can be. That's an amazing position that I've worked my whole life to get to. So of course, the pressure and the intensity of being on the World Cup and the nerves, that is real. And that is hard for me. And it's not always sparkles and rainbows. It really isn't. But overall, when I take a step back, I am living out my childhood dream. You know, I'm literally doing my dream job that I told my teachers when I was in elementary school, like, I want to be an Olympic athlete. Like, that's what I want to do for my job. Like, I've wanted to do this for so long and I'm getting the chance to. And so in that respect, I'm like, why wouldn't I be happy? Like, why wouldn't I be smiling even if this is hard, even if things happen out of my control on race day that make it very challenging and emotional? Like, at the end of the day, I'm still getting to do this absolutely incredible thing, and I'm surrounded by really good people who I like. And it's so rare that we get to live a job that is our passion and our purpose, and we love our coworkers like family. And so I I just... I am base. My baseline is pretty darn happy because I realize that this isn't something that I get to have forever. And there, you know, there's a lifespan to every athletic career. I want to enjoy it while I can. You said that you do get nervous and stressed out. What does that look like for you, like on race Mm. day? Well, it's hard to tease apart from the caffeine because I'm a big coffee <laughs> girl. So <laughs> I will say sometimes it's like pretty jittery and I honestly couldn't tell you if that's nerves or if that's because I've had a second cup of coffee. I'm not totally sure. Um, but I also get, again, this is such a strange response, but I get really happy and pretty like giggly and I'm braiding my hair which serves a dual purpose of keeping my hands busy and giving me something to do because we often don't race until 11 or 11.30 in the morning. So you have some time to kill. And I'm braiding my teammates' hair. And it's also very functional because it keeps it out of your face and putting glitter on and organizing my race day bag. And I'm usually kind of whirling around like a small tornado, but I'm also pretty psyched. 
And sometimes when I get nervous, I do get a little like shaky and a little quiet, but most of the time I get a little bit loud and a little bit hyper. And I think it's just the nervous butterflies coming to the surface. And I've learned that that's an okay thing. It's okay to have those butterflies. Like they're going to help me fly around the course. Do you think that the team dynamic with you, I would say presenting sort of this different version of what competition and aggression look like, do you think that's, you know, helping the rest of the team sort of change how they view, you know, like sort of what they're supposed to look like when they're competing and wanting to win? And, you know, I think we can get into this, you know, like wanting to win looks a certain way and you're mm. presenting a different way. I That's a good point because – I think your traditional, like if you're a serious, focused athlete, you kind of show up to the start line like, grr, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's an image that we've been taught. And then I realize that I'm, I'm kind of the polar opposite with the smile and the sparkle and the, um, yeah, whatever I've got going on. But I also want to say that all forms of race face are valid. So I have teammates who need to get, you know, a little more serious before the sure. start. I have friends on other teams who their thing is, you know, I'm going to shadow box my coach and then pull up to the line. <laughs> and that's that's super cool. All those forms are valid. It's whatever you need. And I think it's kind of like everyone processes emotions in different ways and that's okay. Everyone gets psyched up for a race in different ways and that's okay. So I want to make sure my teammates see, okay, here's one option. But ultimately, however they get ready for a race is going to be right for them. But what I really want to make sure I project is I don't care if you smile or not, wear glitter or not, whatever, but you have to be a good teammate and you have to be a good person first. So it's not win at all costs. If you win, but you stepped on your team to do it and you were not courteous and you didn't thank your coaches and your wax techs, if you are snapping at the volunteers, that is not okay. So you can be serious on race day, but being a good teammate and a good human will always come first because in 10 years, you're not going to remember if you got fifth place or seventh place in a 10K classic in Nova Mesto, Czech Republic. That's not going to matter. But you are going to remember if you were a good teammate and if you felt like you belonged on that team and if you treated other people with respect. And that's what they're going to remember about you. And so that's the part that I I do work hard to project because you may or may not want to smile at the start, but you have to be a good person. You guys spend so much time together, you know, like in close quarters for a long period of time. Yeah, we do. And I think that's that's one of our um, – it's one of the challenges of being an American cross-country skier because with the exception of this winter, pretty much all your races – I know. <laughs> I'm plugging it so hard. Yeah, she we're going to talk like, about that. <laughs> oh, good. 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 But um, it's interesting because pretty much all your races are in Europe. So if you're racing most of the calendar, you're going to be on the road for four months. And that is super challenging. You're away from your family, your loved ones. You're away from all the the foods you love, your own bed, your own pillow, <laughs> like all of these things that help ground you, right? Big things, small things. And that can be really challenging. But at the same time, 
when you're traveling with your team, and and we're really fortunate because the men, the women, we all travel as one unit. So it's a big group. And we end up becoming this family. And I know that's so cliche, like, oh, my team is my family. But I really can't describe it any other way. Like, I would drop anything and do anything for my teammates. And I know they would do that for me. And they have. We've been there for each other through really tough stuff. We've seen each other at our best and we've seen each other at our worst. And that is so grounding. And so we've created a super strong unit that will look out for each other and have each other's backs. And so I think if we weren't on the road together and if it wasn't absolutely imperative that we build this strong base to weather any storm – then maybe we wouldn't have what we have. So I don't know. It's impossible to know. But I I think one of our superpowers is this strong team chemistry that we actively work on building and maintaining. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Do you What do you do to create that or and keep it? Oh, I tell you, but I have to kill you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we have uh, a lot of different things that we do. And I think one of the interesting things is you need buy-in from everyone. You know, you can give the most motivational speeches in the world, but at the end of the day, every person on the team has to decide, I want to belong to this and this is important to me and I'm going to see how I can add to it. So I think there's a couple different things. One is the idea of collective ownership of results. And that means that you know, when when my teammates have a really good breakthrough race, an awesome day, I know that I'm part of that because I was there every day at training. I encouraged them. I pushed them in intervals. I openly shared everything I've ever learned. You know, I love it when they ask questions. I'm like, great, let me tell you everything. Like, this is awesome. And so when they succeed, I'm a little piece of that. And when I succeed, they're most definitely a piece of anything I've ever accomplished. Um, And that reaches beyond just my teammates. It's my sports psychologist, my strength coach, our coaches on the road, our wax techs. It's the whole team. So, you know, the Olympic medals are really belonging to about a thousand different people. And to me, that is so cool. It makes it so much more meaningful. And it gives you a strong why when you know that the whole team is invested in you and you're invested in them. We also talk about the team culture and what's important to us and what values and behaviors are important to us. So for example, protecting your teammates. If you wake up with a cold, you pull yourself away from the team instead of just saying, oh, well, like I would like to sit with the team at breakfast. It's like, no, 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 no. My teammates' hopes and dreams and goals are important to me. I'm going to isolate myself just for a couple of days to protect the health of the team. That's important. And That is, you know, a goal and a value turned into an action that's being carried out by someone on the team to protect everyone around them. And that's really cool. So there's little actions and big actions that we take to show the team like this group as a whole is really important. When you said that your Olympic medals belong to a thousand people, you know, I believed you. I mean, you you obviously 100 percent believe that. And I think that's hard. You know, I think saying thank you in a real, honest, believable way is one of the biggest challenges of an individual sport who has a team behind them. Is it? 
I think so. I mean, I guess, I, I've seen it done very badly. Let's, let's okay. Say I was gonna say that's that's genuinely shocking to me because like I don't know, like I think that's the first thing that I wanted to do. Like after winning world champs this last season, like I got to hug my coach and I just started sobbing like a baby. Like I was just it's so much sacrifice from so many different people, like walking into the wax truck and seeing what that meant to those people who had given up so much to be there and worked so hard. Like for me, that was, that brought me to tears again. It was so incredible. And that's, I don't know. Like, I think knowing that your success belongs to so many people, that's the best part. If your success only belongs to you, then like who cares? You know, <laughs> like what does that mean? That doesn't doesn't do anything. It doesn't make the world a better place. It doesn't inspire anybody if your success just lives and dies with you. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. All right, let's move on to the World Cup in Minnesota. Yes. Tell me. <laughs> I'm so excited. I will be there, in fact. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, this. Ugh. It's so cool. And I think part of what makes it cool is that we had to work and fight for this for so long. Like right after Keegan and I won that medal in the 2018 Olympics, the one of my biggest goals was to use that to gain the momentum to help make this World Cup happen. And then it was going to happen, but it was canceled five days out because covid and it seems like a silly thing to mourn the loss of that when obviously so many bigger problems were happening in the world. But it was hard because it was something that would have brought so many people joy and inspired so many kids. And so I think to me, it's so cool, again, that group ownership, like seeing how many people have sacrificed and worked their faces off to make this World Cup come to life again. And what it's going to mean to people, I mean, I would have given anything, anything to see the World Cup live when I was in high school. I would have driven anywhere and done anything and I couldn't because they were all in Europe and there was just no way of getting there. And to be able to bring this to the community that raised me and have all these families come see and be close enough to reach out and touch the athletes as they're skiing by, like, what an amazing experience. And it's free, right? Thanks to Share Winter. Like the tickets are free. So it's accessible to people. And it just means so much to me. And so this is something that I've wanted my entire career. I've raced, I don't know, 270 something World Cups and not a single one has been in my own country. And so being able to race like in front of my grandparents and my family at home, like this is something that I've dreamed of for 15 years. It's just so cool. It is super cool. So what do the other racers think about, you know, like having come to the States and how is that going to change the season? Well, either the entire World Cup collectively decided let's lie to Jesse to make her happy or they're <laughs> genuinely excited to come. I'm not even sure which one it is. I'm like, I, I know you can't say to my face that you don't want to come because you know this has been my dream for like six years. So either everyone's a really good liar or they're just like, yeah, we want something new and fresh. This is exciting. Sure. You know, most of the racers on the World Cup 
they don't ever get a chance to come over to North America, except for the Canadian World Cups, but we haven't had one in a while now. So, so much of the World Cup has never been to the U.S. And this is such a cool opportunity to see a different part of the world. And that's exciting. Like last season, we had a World Cup stop in France and we hadn't been back to France in years. And it was amazing. And it had the best fans. There were chainsaws, bladeless chainsaws, but (laughs) chainsaws, smoke bombs, people screaming, chanting. It was electric. It was so cool. And you could see what it meant to people, like the World Cup's coming here and and we don't get this opportunity all the time. And we felt that and it meant something to us too. You know, I I was so thrilled to get to France. And so I I do think the other athletes on the World Cup feel that about our stop in Minneapolis. Well, I want to talk about some of the other organizations that you work with, like Emily's program and Protect Our Winters. So let's start with um, Emily's program. And I think what I'm interested in, because they talk a lot about, you know, like you don't have to be perfect. And so I'm curious, what does that mean in practical terms, like not being perfect and thinking, you know, not thinking that you have to be perfect? Yeah. So, um, for any listeners who don't know my backstory, the Emily program is the eating disorder recovery and treatment place that saved my life when I was 18 years old. I was very sick and needed professional help. Just the way you would if you broke your leg, you're not going to be like, well, you know, my positive attitude will heal my bones. Like you're going to go to a hospital, you're going to go to a doctor, right? And so I got the help that I needed and I learned so much along the way and one of the biggest things that I learned was that eating disorders, like, yes, a lot of the symptoms of the eating disorder presents itself in food, right? How we control food, eating it, not eating it, all these different things. But really, the roots of your eating disorder, it's it's in your brain. It's a mental illness. It's not your fault. It's not a behavioral choice. You're not a bad person. You need help figuring out what's going on and what the root cause of it is. Like what what is making you feel like this is your only coping mechanism at the moment? Because for me, at its core, my eating disorder was a coping mechanism for all the pressure I was putting on myself to be perfect and all the stress I felt and all the emotions that I didn't know how to process that were coming up with that. And so I had to do a lot of really hard emotional work digging into that and and really leaning in and going all right this is these are painful things to feel and talk about and share but i need to because that's how i'm going to figure out what's really going on here and for me one of the biggest things was i was very all or nothing i have a very type a personality and it's reflected in the way i race you know it, it is all or nothing if i'm going to do it i'm going to be pretty much passed out on the ground at the end of that race. And I don't know any other way. And those tendencies make me a very good athlete, but they also make me very at risk for eating disorders coming back up and being triggered. And so one of the things that I had to embrace was that, you know, just like all foods fit into a healthy lifestyle, you know, all the different parts of me fit into me being okay as a human. I don't always have to be happy. I don't always have to be perfect. Like it's okay for a workout 
to be less than stellar, I will still be doing the best that I can. And so I had to shift away from I'm trying to be perfect to, you know, am I doing the best I can right now? Then that's that should be enough. I should be able to declare myself satisfied with my best effort today. And if this is all I have to give, that's okay too. Like I'm giving what I can in this moment. That's hard. Yeah, it is. And <laughs> it's something that I am actively still working on. And um, I have a tendency to be really hard on myself. And I think it is tough because when I ask myself, am I giving everything I can? That doesn't mean I have to run myself into the ground and say yes to every request and yes to everything I possibly could be doing. Maybe doing the best that I can means preserving time to take care of myself and what I need and making sure that I can come down after a hard workout and unwind and relax and reset and save time for my friends and my family. Those are really, really important things to me the most important actually. And I, if I work myself into the ground, I, I won't have those things. So it's something that I'm actively working on every day. Uh, yeah, I have trouble saying no. I was going to ask you a question about that, but we'll leave it there unless you have lessons that you've learned about learning to say no, because I am so terrible. Um, yeah, if, I mean, well, if I had the answer, yes, <laughs> would, exactly. yeah, it's, that's like the, that is the money question. Yeah. But one of the things that I learned is I am terrible at saying no. And so I might have to recruit other people to say no for me. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons like I work with a sport agent who is wonderful and does a great job and works so hard. And he is like, no, no, no. I've seen your training schedule. I've seen all of the asks and requests and I've seen your commitments. You can't do this. And so he can say no for me. He's like, no possible way. I will, I will say no for you because you can't fit this in. And my husband, he is the best at it because he sees me every day and he's like, I see what this will do to you if you take on all these things. So nope can't do it. Like the schedule is full of time for me. And I'm like, you're right. That's so important. That's the most important thing. And so I have, you know, asked other people who know me and who I trust to like, can you tell me when enough is enough? And can you tell me, you know, I need to say no to this and how do I say no? And so that's, that's been really helpful is sharing with other people close to me. Like, here's where we need to set these boundaries and then help me respect the boundaries that I've set for myself. Because at the end of the day, I need to grow my respect for my own time. And that's what I was missing. Right, right. Also understanding that it's finite, which sometimes can yeah. be difficult. You know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I had all the time in the world, then I would do everything. And right. wouldn't right. we all? And so that's the... <laughs> That's the sticking point is you only have so much time. While I was researching, I read and heard your words so many times that you want to inspire the next generation. Let's talk about that. And maybe, you know, I would love to talk, too, about the 50-kilometer World Cup race that happened. And, yeah. you know, sort of as as 
part of how that is going to inspire the next generation and deal with equity and all of that stuff. It's just, A, that was amazing, but certainly there's other things to talk about the next generation. Oh my goodness. Yes. So (laughs) I think this is such a great question for me because there's different ways that I want to inspire the next generation. So for example, I sit on the board of the Share Winter Foundation, which is a grant-making organization that um, supports programs that gets kids on snow for the first time to learn a winter sport, whether that's um, skiing or snowboarding or alpine skiing. So that's a really cool thing, and that is giving people the opportunity to experience the sport that I love so much. So that's one way. Another way is I'm part of the Athlete Alliance for Protect Our Winters, and I also serve on their board. And so getting the sneak peek behind the curtains of how we can hope to preserve our planet for everyone, but also selfishly, you know, we want to get those kids on snow for the first time. That's not going to do a whole lot if there isn't snow for them to get on. And so that's, you know, the the two of those missions work closely together in my mind of, you know, we want to protect the planet and give them something to have and then give them the opportunities to play on that planet. And so those two things are very, very important to me. And it's all a balancing act, of course, around training, but it feels good in my heart when I'm able to do work with both of them. And then the other part is just sharing myself. Like I really want young athletes, uh, not just young women, but men too, to see the different parts of my story. And that's why I race and and share like, hey, I'm not perfect. I struggle with an eating disorder. I need to lean on my support team. I need to ask for help. It's okay if you need to ask for help too. Like you do not have to be perfect to be able to live your dreams and accomplish things and feel satisfied and fulfilled and challenged. Like you can do that while asking for help from people that you trust and that you love. And so that's part of why I've embraced this vulnerability, even though that has made things really hard for me. And then to get back to your original question about the 50 kilometer, it's really important for me to show that, you know, you you might be a woman in sport and maybe you want to run a 5K race. Maybe you want to run a marathon. Maybe you want to run an ultra marathon. And maybe you're like, you know what? I don't want to do any of those things. You all are crazy. However, you should have the opportunity. If you want to run 100 miles, you should be allowed to sign up and challenge yourself and do it and try your best. And what frustrated me for so long was that on the World Cup, we were not allowed to challenge ourselves the same way as the men. We only had a 30-kilometer race as our longest distance, and the men had 50. And we had equity in every other way. We had the same TV showing opportunities. We raced the same courses and we raised the same amount and the prize money is the same. We received the same amount of support from our national governing body. And I can't speak for every country. I know some of them need to work on that. But in the U.S. at least, I feel exactly on par with my peers. Um, it's not about gender. It's just about your effort and going out there and training hard. And so finally having equal distance on the World Cup, it felt like that you know, that amazing, satisfying feeling of locking the last puzzle piece in place. You're like, all right, now we've got the full picture. 
now we can see what's really happening here. And to me, that was one of the most empowering things because if you don't want to raise 50K, that's okay. You don't have to, but let me do it if I want to and if it's important to me. And please do not take away my chance to push myself because that's why I race. I want to see what's down at the bottom of the well and getting the chance to do these long distances. That's part of how I do that. So I think when they allowed us to race 50K, that to me brought a lot of magic and passion back into racing. It was amazing. Yeah. What have you seen since you've been on the national team for so long and you've been skiing so long? Like, what is your impression of, you know, how the girls are coming up now? And, you know, like, are they experiencing the sport in a really different way than you did as a young female athlete like many years ago? Yeah, I think they are. And it's not fair for me to speak for them. So this is my impression. (laughs) But I can say, you know, my first year on the national team, we didn't have a wax truck. We were working out of a cargo van. And the wax techs had to set up and tear down an entire wax room at every single venue. They got sick a lot. We got sick a lot. We had no nutritional support. We were looking at pooling together our money to hire a massage therapist during the tour because we only ever had a budget for massage therapy just at world championships. And our entire team budget for the entire year was less than Norway's wax budget. And so we were working and doing the best with what we had, but our resources were nothing compared to the people we were racing against. And now, like, yeah, we're, we're still not quite on par with some of the countries, but we have nutritional support. We have PTs and MTs traveling with us. We have a team doctor traveling with us. So if something goes wrong, you have help. You're not just going to other teams and begging for their team doctor who hopefully speaks English to help fix you. You have all these opportunities. We have a wax truck. Our waxing budget has improved exponentially. And there's still things that we need, but the opportunities that this generation has, like they will never know what it's like to not have a wax truck or to not have someone there to help when their body breaks. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And that's something that we fought for, for them. And that matters. And that is a huge point of pride for me, for the all the men and women who came before me, because they helped give that to me. And so I want to help give that to the next generation. And I also see a growth of confidence because they're seeing we belong. We belong on the World Cup. We're one of the top countries now. We have someone on the podium almost every weekend. This is something we can do. doesn't matter if you're not Scandinavian or whatever. Like, you can do this. You can work hard. You can compete clean. You can do this the right way. And you can succeed. And I think just that proof that we're offering up has helped that confidence and the innate belief of like, oh yeah, I can do that. Um, and that that to me is very, very cool to see. I wanted to go back to the climate change work that you're doing because it was amazing watching on TV the crazy snow that you guys had to ski on at least part of the season. Those little mm. strips of white ribbon. You know, wow. Oh, yeah. Um, I can talk about that all day. And in fact, that's exactly what I talk about when we go 
to DC with Protect Our Winners, when we go and lobby and talk to our representatives about why it's so important to us that, you know, in this huge to-do list that they have, you know, they, they get every concern in the world brought to them. And so when we have the opportunity to raise climate change to the top of that list and to keep it up there and keep it relevant, that's so important because we get to share these stories of what it's like to see spectators in January in mountain towns that depend on winter tourism to run the town. It's not just the joy of being on snow. It's their jobs. It's the town. You know, everyone depends on this. And climate change impacts people differently around the world and recognizing that it's not it is not fair to simply put all the responsibility for solving climate change on individuals. Not everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone financially can do that. And that's why our focus is we need large-scale policy changes from the top down that will actually move the needle really fast. And so instead of placing the blame for a water shortage on one person's leaky faucet, let's fix the waterfall down the street first and then have everyone work on their own kitchen sink. You know what I mean? I think it's really important that we recognize that because I think we've been fed this narrative that if you say you care about climate change, you'll never fly anywhere again and you'll never go to another wedding or another family event or another funeral or another vacation. That's not a reality that people can embrace. People are asked to travel for so many reasons, work included. And so wouldn't it be amazing to lobby and advocate for a future in which we use the technologies that we have to make travel sustainable and make it climate neutral and protect our planet? Because we're never going to be able to go backwards in terms of technology from where we are now. That's not really an option. So we need to say, how can we change our future to protect the places that we love? And that's a big part of what we do with Protect Our Winners. And so it's it's been really cool empowering the outdoor community to use their voices in a way that can really affect change. Well, thank you. Is there anything that uh, I missed that maybe you want to let listeners know? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I feel like we covered a lot of different things. We did. Um, I guess I I just want to say a huge thank you to our support team because you don't succeed in an individual sport without an amazing support team in many ways. I don't mean just the wax sacks and the coaches. I mean my mental support team, the people who are looking out for my health, my well-being, my family, and most of all my husband and I think embracing the fact that it takes a village and really leaning on them is huge. And that's why I'm still in the sport today. So I hope if people take something away from this, I guess it's that it's okay to ask for help when you need it. And it's okay to to not be able to do something alone. And that actually will bring so much more meaning to whatever it is you're trying to tackle if you do it with other people your why and your reason to keep going when it gets tough will only grow and get bigger the more people that you pull in with you. Well, thank you. That's a beautiful way to end. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> 
That's all for today. A huge thank you to Jessie for making time to talk to me. It is an honor that Hear Her Sports was a yes. Obviously, I'm a fan of Jessie's, but the truth is, I'm a super fan of the entire women's U.S. Nordic ski team. And this winter, Hear Her Sports has exciting news for the World Cup season as we head towards the World Cup in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which will be in February. Keep listening to find out what that's all about. Meanwhile, tell your friends about this episode and send me a note about what you thought. It's exciting to be part of what you're doing, your training and your racing and your learning. Email elizabeth at hearhersports.com. Go to the show notes for links to what Jesse and I covered in our conversation, including the organizations that she actively supports, like the EMILY program and Protect Our Winters. On our website, find the show notes, ways to reach me or sign up for the newsletter, links to listen to every episode, and ways to support the show through Bookshop and Buy Me a Coffee. Go to hearhersports.com. If you are new to Hear Her Sports, there are lots of former guests to discover, like Canadian Olympic skier Catherine Stewart-Jones, U.S. Nordic ski coach Kristen Bourne, Olympic superstar speed skater Aaron Jackson, and Olympic ice hockey player Brianna Decker. Hear Her Sports is a proud member of Evergreen Podcast. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. I just love sharing these stories told by female athletes. I'm super glad you are here and hope you got something from the episode to motivate you. Thank you for listening and for being part of the rise of women's sports. We are back to the regular every other week schedule. If you miss us in the off weeks, sign up for the newsletter. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!